Well, good morning and happy Easter. It is cool to see you here today. Service is a little bigger than I thought it would be, actually, but I guess it's uh, daylight saving, so the second service is going to be like four people or something like that. <laughs> but that's all right. It's really cool to have you here as we celebrate Easter. And uh, the way we're doing that this morning is actually to build off the series we've been in in the last five weeks. We've been looking at the Old Testament book of Jonah, and we finished that up last week. Um, But I wanted to kind of look at the Easter story through the lens of the Jonah story today and kind of wrap Jonah by pointing to uh, the greater Jonah, who is Jesus. I said early on that Jonah is referenced really three different times or three different places in the scriptures. Um, There's a little mention of him in in the book of Kings in the Old Testament, which we looked at in the very first message of Jonah. There's obviously the book of Jonah itself. And then the third time that Jonah gets mentioned is actually in the Gospels. There's a few times that Jesus points to Jonah and does a comparison of himself to Jonah. And that's what I want us to look at uh, briefly this morning as we think about and celebrate Easter together. And so if you've got a Bible with you, whether paper or phone or iPad or whatever it is you're using, um, I'd like to invite you to come with me to Matthew chapter 12. And I want to look at one of these references in the Gospels. There's a few of them, but they're all pretty much saying the same thing as Jesus points to Jonah as what he calls a sign about himself. And so I want to look at one of these um, passages with, uh, with you today in Matthew chapter 12. Just a, a short passage, really, and it comes in the context of really some great debate going on between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been um, teaching some incredible truths. But the more he is showing who he is, the more he's displaying his power through his miraculous acts, the more he's showing his authority in the way he teaches, the more the opposition is building up against him. And then we come to this kind of almost a hinge moment in the way that the gospel is unfolding uh, as the the religious leaders of of Israel come to him. And and we're going to start reading from verse 38 here. So it's towards the end of this chapter, uh, Matthew 12, verse 38. And that verse reads this way, uh, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In other words, we want you to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are who you say you are. Now, you need to understand that it's not that they haven't seen any, anything miraculous from Jesus to this point. In fact, uh, what Matthew does is he actually groups a lot of the miracles and then the teachings in blocks through his gospel. And there's already been a couple of blocks of miracles where Jesus is showing by all kinds of amazing deeds that he really is who he claims to be. And so these religious leaders are coming to him and saying, show us a sign, not because he hasn't already, but because they are unmoved and they want to see something that so blows them out of the water that it would absolutely convince them. Jesus, as we're about to see, is going to refuse to do that because the problem with these religious leaders is not that Jesus hasn't been doing signs that point to who he is. The problem with these religious leaders is that they just refused to believe. In fact, there was one religious leader at this time who was blown away by the signs. In, in John's Gospel, we read about him. His name is, uh, is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus came to Jesus one night in John chapter 3, and this is what he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Well, how does he know that? 
He says, because no one could perform the signs you're doing if God was not with him. So there's one religious leader who is going, I'm looking at all of the miracles you're doing, Jesus, and I'm going, okay, this guy's from God, and I need to find out what he's doing. All the rest of the religious leaders are coming to Jesus in Matthew 12 and going, show us something that you haven't shown us before. Show us something that will knock our socks off. Show us something that would, beyond all shadow of doubt, convince us that you really are the Messiah. And so that's how this little story, this little bracket here begins with this request for a sign. And then Jesus is going to respond to that uh, in verses 39 and 40. Have a look if you've got it open there with you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, if you're a prophet trying to start a movement, that's probably not the way that you address uh, the more powerful members of the society you're in. Um, Dale Carnegie wrote years ago the book about, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Um, this, this little reference didn't make it into his book. Because if you want to win friends and influence people, you don't call them a wicked and adulterous generation. And I've always wondered, what on earth was Jesus doing? And so I dug into that little phrase a little bit more. And what I realized this last week is that Jesus is actually quoting scripture to them. He's going back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the five books of Moses that start off the Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy is the sermon that Moses preached to the people of Israel right before they headed into the promised land and right before he died. So the nation of Israel had come out of captivity in Egypt 40 years beforehand. They'd been set free from slavery Um, They'd celebrated the Passover, they'd been led through the Red Sea, they'd gone to Mount Sinai and received the tablets of the law from God, and then they'd come up to the border of the Promised Land, and 12 spies had gone in to get a report, and they came back, and 10 of them said, the land is great, but the people are too big, and only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, no, no, we can take the land, God is with us, and the whole nation of Israel... All of them, bar none, sided with the ten spies and said, forget this, we're not going and we don't trust God. And so God, as a result of that, said to the nation, you and I are going to wander for 40 years through the desert. As everyone 20 years of age and older dies off, and a whole new generation will come through who either were children and teenagers during the Exodus or weren't even born yet and will be born during this, this wandering 40 years, and that's the generation that will go into the land. Now, in the middle of talking about that, this is the wording that Moses uses in Deuteronomy 1 as he's addressing now, 40 years later, this whole new crop, this new generation of people. He said, looking back 40 years ago, when Yahweh heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from, here's the phrase, this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except Caleb and Joshua. Later on in Deuteronomy, towards the end, he will say they are corrupt and not as children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. And see, when Jesus looks at these religious leaders in Matthew 12 and calls them a wicked and adulterous generation, he's drawing a direct line from them back to the story of the Exodus and that whole group of Israelites who refused to go into the land. 
And he's saying, your refusal to believe in me, where you keep asking for a sign, is exactly the same lack of faith as that evil and adulterous generation back there. He's saying to them, the problem is not that I am not producing signs. I am. Nicodemus said that. The problem is you refuse to believe and there's nothing I can do that is actually going to convince you because you've already made your mind up. You will not follow me. So that's how he begins his response to them. But then he carries on this way. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he turns around and says, you guys are just like that generation of Israelites that refused to believe God and go into the land. You're not going to believe regardless. So I'm not going to give you any more signs. I'm not going to produce miracles to convince you. Here's the sign I'll give you. I'll give you one, the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That's the sign. Now, what's he talking about? What he's talking about is his future death and resurrection. But he talks about it in the context of this prophet that we've been looking at for these last five weeks, the prophet Jonah. And he calls it the sign of Jonah. Now, what exactly is the sign of Jonah? In the last few weeks, as we've gone through the the Old Testament book of Jonah, I've had a few different people come to me and ask pretty much the same question. They've heard different teachers or read somewhere or whatever the idea that Jonah actually died in the belly of the fish. And so Jonah, when he was in the fish, he actually died, and when the fish vomited him up, uh, he came back to life again. And so Jonah, in dying and being raised to life, becomes a sign pointing forwards to what Jesus would do in a few centuries' time. Now, I'd never heard that before, and so I went digging to go, okay, let me, let me check this out and have a look at this. And I've actually found there are a, few, a number of scholars, not many, but there's a number of scholars who do suggest that this is what's going on in the book of Jonah, and this is the sign that's pointing to Jesus, that just as Jonah died and rose again, so will Jesus. So one of them is a wonderful old scholar who's dead now, but a very cool gentleman called Vernon McGee. And McGee wrote this, I I downloaded his uh, paper on, on the whole book of Jonah. He said, years ago, I took the position, which I still hold today, that Jonah was not alive inside the fish, but that he died and God raised him up from the dead. And the reason he believes that is if you look at Jonah chapter 2, which is the prayer that we looked at, Jonah talks about going into Sheol or going into the grave, the realm of the dead. We'll come back to that verse in just a minute. And so he says probably what Vernon McGee says is uh, obviously Jonah prays from inside the belly of the whale. So probably he, uh, he was drowning, the fish swallowed him. As he's being swallowed or as he's going into into the fish, he prays and he cries out to God. That's the prayer we've got recorded. And then he dies in there because he can't breathe. And then when he's vomited up, God miraculously brings him back to life again. Uh, McGee goes on a little later in his paper and says um, about the comparison of Jonah and Jesus. uh, Was the Lord Jesus alive or dead? Well, you say he was dead for three days. Yes, McGee writes, was Jonah alive or dead? He had to be dead in order to bear out what the Lord is saying. In other words, McGee looks at this passage in Matthew 12 and says if the whole comparison between Jonah and Jesus is going to work, Jesus died and was made alive. Therefore, Jonah had to have died. 
and come back to life again. So I've spent a little bit of time looking at that and trying to figure out what's the sign of Jonah here? What's Jesus trying to, what's the comparison he's making? And I think I've come to the conclusion that while I think it's possible that McGee's right, I don't think it's likely. I don't think that, Jesus, uh, that Jonah actually died in the fish. And there's a few reasons for that that I just want to kind of walk through and then we'll come back to what the sign of Jonah means for Jesus. Uh, first reason I don't think that Jonah died is because I think McGee's misunderstood Jonah's prayer. He has assumed, like a lot of people assume, that Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2 is a cry for help that he's been swallowed by a fish, and as he's kind of working through the esophagus, or however the big fish worked, I don't even know, we don't even know what kind of fish it was, but as he's being swallowed, he kind of cries out to God uh, for help. But as I said, when we looked at Jonah chapter 2, that's a misunderstanding of that whole prayer, because that prayer was not a prayer that God would deliver him. It was not a cry for help. It was a thank you for helping me. It was a thank you for saving me. See, the fish in Jonah, as I said a few weeks ago, the fish in Jonah is not God's judgment of Jonah for his running away. It's God's way of saving Jonah from drowning. And when you read the the prayer of Jonah carefully in Jonah chapter 2, what you realize is this is not Jonah's cry for help. This is Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving. It's his prayer saying, thanks, God, for saving me. I was drowning, I was in trouble, and you saved me. See, Dr. McGee has grabbed these words. This is the way that the prayer begins in Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, he prayed to Yahweh as God. He said, in my distress, I called to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And so what Dr. McGee has done is he's taken like that wording there um, in that kind of second to last line, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. That's in the Hebrew language, that is Sheol, or the place of the dead. And so Dr. McGee says, see, Jonah was in Sheol, and he cried out to help, to God for help. The problem is that the prayer here, I think, is Jonah looking back on the fact God has already saved him and he's giving thanks. Dr. McGee's trying to say, this is Jonah crying out for help. I think this is Jonah reflecting on the fact he did cry out for help and God's already saved him. I called to Yahweh and he answered me. I called for help and you listened to my cry. And Dr. McGee actually, as I read through his paper, he doesn't actually do a lot with this whole prayer. He kind of assumes that Jonah's just crying out for help as he's getting sucked into the fish and then he dies. Actually, I think the way the prayer reads, it's a prayer of thanks to God as he is alive in the fish, which, as I said, is a miracle, but I don't think it's a particularly hard miracle for the God of miracles. So one of the reasons I think uh, the idea that, that Jonah died in the fish, that that isn't right, is because it's, I think it's based on a misunderstanding of the prayer. Secondly, though, and more importantly, I think it misunderstands the, the poetic language. See, what's going on in Jonah 2 is we're reading a psalm And we should read Jonah 2 like we read the Psalms of the Old Testament. See, Dr. McGee's come along and said, you know, he's deep in the realm of the dead. He's deep in Sheol. Um, He'll come later on to these verses later on in Jonah 2. 
and say, you know, the engulfing waters threatened me, they surrounded me, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. That sounds like the grave, like I'm sinking to the very depths of, of, of died. The earth beneath barred me in forever. So Dr. McGee says, see, he, he's, he's pretty much died. The problem is I think he's misunderstanding the poetry of this. And the poetry, I think, is based a lot on the book of Psalms. I said when we walked through this beautiful psalm of thanksgiving a few weeks ago, I think there's allusions or references to nine or ten psalms from the book of Psalms in these few brief verses that Jonah prays. For example, I think Jonah prays part of this psalm, Psalm 18, which is one of David's songs. Look at what David sings. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Does this mean that David had died? Well, no. Psalm 18 is actually a prayer of thanks to God when God helped him escape one of the times he was on the run for his life from King Saul as a young man. Now, I don't know anyone who thinks that Saul actually captured him and killed him and he came back to life. That's not David's story. But look at the way David describes what that time in his life was like. He said, it's like I was engulfed and death had me. He describes it as this near-death experience that God came through and, and rescued him from. Well, this is another psalm of David, Psalm 30. These words will be familiar, potentially. I'll exalt you, Yahweh, for you lifted me out of the depths. Look at verse 3. You, Yahweh, brought me up from the realm of the dead. This is the psalm that Jonah 2 is quoting. When Jonah prays in the fish, you brought me up from the realm of the dead, he's quoting David from Psalm 30. Does that mean that David has died and come back to life? No. It's poetic language. This is poets of the Bible using expressive language to say, man, I was this close to death. I thought my life was over. I was in serious trouble. And then God, you came through and you saved me and you lifted me out from the pit. You lifted me up from the depths. And that's exactly what Jonah's praying. I don't think we meant to read Jonah chapter 2 and think he died. I think we meant to read Jonah chapter 2 and realize that in beautiful poetic language, Jonah's saying, I was drowning. Seaweed was wrapped around my, my head. I was sinking to the very depths of the waters, and I thought this was it. And then you saved me, Yahweh. You came through and saved my life. So I don't think Jonah died. I think it's a misunderstanding of his prayer. The third reason, though, I think Dr. McGee has got it wrong is because I think he's misunderstood the comparison Jesus is making here. And this brings us back to Matthew chapter 12. Because what he's saying is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to give you rebellious people who refuse to believe in me. I'm not going to give you any more signs except this sign. Just as Jonah died and rose again, so I'm going to die and rose again, rise again. That's what Dr. McGee's arguing the sign is, but I think he's actually got it a little bit wrong. See, verse 39 is where he talks about no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then verse 40 is an explanation of what that means. That's why verse 40 begins with that little word for. Key word, you know, you'd circle that kind of thing. 
For, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I've laid out verse 40 so we can see how it works in parallel. See, now this is a comparison. As Jonah, first half, so the Son of Man, second half. So there's a comparison going on. Jesus is comparing Jonah and what happened to him and what's going to happen with Jesus himself. But what you have to do is you have to look carefully at Jesus' words and say, okay, what is being compared that's similar and what's going to be different? Now, what's similar, I think, is pretty easy to see. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The comparison is not that Jonah died and rose again just like Jesus. The comparison is a time comparison. Just as Jonah ended up in the belly of the fish for three days and then came back, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and come be resurrected back to life. It's not they both died. It's a when comparison. It's a time comparison. In fact, the last lines there are different. The Son of Man, which is Jesus talking about himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's Sheol. That's the grave. He's saying, I'm going to die. And then he's predicting here that he's going to come back to life. Notice carefully, he doesn't say Jonah was in Sheol or in the grave. Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish. Which I think means just the opposite of what Dr. McGee thinks it means. I don't think he died. I think he disappeared from the world because he's in this fish. And he got to lie there in the gastric juices for three days, praising God that he didn't drown. Before he got to experience another event that no other human being has ever had, which is being part of the vomit coming out of the big fish. But the comparison between Jonah and Jesus, it's the length of time that's being compared. It's not that their experiences were identical, it's that they both disappeared for three days and then came back. But while Jonah disappeared into a fish for three days, swallowed alive, Jesus is actually going to be swallowed up by death and not just be vomited out, but he's going to rise again. Now, before we go on, that's the sign of Jonah, I think. Before we go on, this raises another question, though. This Easter, we have had, well, we are enjoying a long weekend that started on Friday. And there are two main days to the Easter weekend, aren't they? There's, Easter, uh, there's Good Friday and there's Easter Sunday. Now, I know there's Easter Monday, that's a bonus day, but there's no religious significance to Easter Monday. And if you're at school, you also get Easter Tuesday. Why, I'm not sure. But anyway, that's just an extra bonus. But as we look at the Easter celebration, we celebrate Jesus' death on Good Friday and his rising again on Easter Sunday. And most scholars believe that's the timetable of the Easter story, that Jesus died, was crucified on the Friday. He died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he rose from the grave before dawn on Easter Sunday. Now, we've got a slight difficulty there then because Jesus said the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Now, I read three days and three nights and go, that equals 72 hours. All right? Okay, if you calculate three in the afternoon on Friday to dawn on Sunday, that's closer to 36 hours than 72. So either that means our dating of the Easter story is out and Jesus probably would have needed to have died on a Wednesday, I think, to make that work completely, or Jesus is meaning something different to what I think he's meaning. And that, I think, is what the case is. We read, in the, in the kind of modern scientific mindset we have as we approach the Bible, we read three days and three nights and think that's 72 hours. So Jesus was, gee, he was dead for a pretty long time. But for a Jewish mind, three days and three nights simply means three consecutive days without being the full 24 hours. So that if Jesus died on the Friday and rose again on the Sunday morning, that's the three consecutive days, even though it's not a total of 72 hours. So uh, one apologist, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, puts it this, describes it this way. He says, most biblical scholars believe the phrase three days and nights is a, a Hebrew figure of speech referring to any part of three days or nights. So it's three consecutive days, and it can just be parts of those days. It doesn't mean three whole days. An example of this is actually in the Old Testament book of Esther. So this is, um, if you know the story of Esther, she's become the queen, and she's about to go see this king who's pretty weird. And it says, um, she's writing to you, to sending a message to her cousin Mordecai. And she says in the message, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Okay? So don't eat or drink. Now I would think if she'd sent me that, I'd like good night. That's 72 hours of fasting. And she'll do the same. The very next chapter, you read this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in front of the king and said to the king, if it pleases you, let the king together with your minister Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared. See, now I read her message as meaning fast for 72 hours. She's simply meaning let's fast for three consecutive days and on the third day, she breaks the fast and has a banquet. So let's say day one, she got up, had breakfast, decided on, on her plan, sent the message to Mordecai, let's fast for three days. That half day on the first day would be day one. Day two would be a full day of fasting. Day three, she might have only fasted for the, for, over breakfast and then, and then went and saw the king and that night they had a big banquet. See, three days and nights doesn't necessarily mean 72 hours for the Jewish mind. So we need to take out of our scientific way of reading a phrase and go, okay, this is what it means. And that's what Jesus was saying too. That's why in the same gospel of Matthew, a little bit later on, Jesus will say to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the leaders there, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is Jesus who said, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Who then, a few chapters on, turns around and says, on the third day I'll rise again. He says the same thing in Matthew 20, 
We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over. They'll condemn him to death. He'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. So the three days and three nights thing doesn't mean 72 hours. It simply means three consecutive days, and it can be parts of those days. So the fact it was only Friday afternoon and all day Saturday and the first part of Sunday morning is still three consecutive days. What the sign is that Jesus was referring to was his death and resurrection. And he's saying just as Jonah was in the fish for three consecutive days, alive, I'm going to be dead in the heart of the earth. See, and I personally think, while I have a lot of respect for Dr. McGee, he's a brilliant expositor, or was, well, he probably still is in heaven, I don't know. Um, I think he's misread this. Because the fourth reason, I think, that the sign of Jonah is not Jonah dying and rising again, the fourth reason I think that is because Jesus is greater than Jonah. And that's where Jesus goes in the next couple of verses. See, the the Pharisees have come and, and asked for a sign, and Jesus has responded and said, you're not going to get any more signs except the sign of Jonah. And then in these next couple of verses, Jesus is going to indict them for their unbelief. Really strongly. And in doing so, he's going to do another comparison between him and Jonah. Something greater than Jonah has come. Look at verses 42 and 43. Jesus looks at them and says, The men of Nineveh, who Jonah preached to and who repented, the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation of Israelites and will condemn it. In other words, condemn you, the people he was talking to. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Then verse 42, the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, she will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it too. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. I don't want to look so much at the Solomon reference as I do at the Jonah one in verse 41. Jesus comes along and says, the people of Nineveh who listened to Jonah and miraculously all of them repented, they're going to rise up and they're going to point the finger at the last judgment at this group of people listening to Jesus at that moment when he's speaking then and say they repented and it was only Jonah and you got to hear me. And refuse to believe. Something greater than Jonah is here. It got me thinking. In what way is Jesus greater than Jonah? Now, as I reflected back on the story of Jonah that we've worked through in the last five weeks, I came to a few different conclusions. Number one, Jesus is greater than Jonah because Jonah disobeyed God, whereas Jesus fully obeyed him. I mean, that's the story of Jonah, isn't it? That, that he disobeyed. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, go and proclaim to Nineveh. Verse 3 of chapter 1, but Jonah ran. Even when Jonah obeys later in the story, you get the sense from the text, don't you? 
that he's not fully obeying. His, his heart's not really in it. He's, he's doing the right thing, but his heart really isn't any closer to God than it was. And so in chapter 4 of Jonah, he ends up berating God for being, daring to be compassionate and kind and forgiving. Jesus, on the other hand, fully obeys. He does everything the Father asks of him. One of the books of the, Old, of the New Testament will say that there was no sin in him. He never disobeyed. He never did anything wrong. Jonah disobeyed. Jesus fully obeyed. Jonah hated his enemies. Jonah ends up, as we saw last week, castigating Almighty God for being God, for being compassionate and gracious and forgiving and slow to anger. And Jesus, on the other hand, loved his enemies. In fact, Jesus will be the very epitome of that verse from Exodus that Jonah quotes at God in anger. In the beginning of Jonah chapter 4, Jonah gets mad at God and quotes this foundational verse of the Old Testament saying, see, I knew it, God. I knew this is the kind of God you are, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and loving and faithful. I just knew you'd be like that. And he's angry about it because he desperately hated the Ninevites and didn't want them to be forgiven. Jesus comes along and not only prays on the cross for those who have killed him, for their forgiveness. Not only commands his followers to love our enemies and do good to those who hurt us. Jesus comes as the very living example. This God in human flesh. He comes as the compassionate and gracious God. And that's the way Jesus lives his whole life. In fact, there's a beautiful little phrase in the beginning of John's Gospel. This line uh, the third line down, abounding in love and faithfulness, that got translated a couple of year, uh, centuries before Jesus into the Greek language. It's what's called the Septuagint. And John picks up those two words out of this passage and uses it to describe Jesus in John 1.14. The word became flesh. That's Jesus and he made his dwelling in monarchs, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are the words that the Septuagint use to translate love and faithfulness. John says, this God that Jonah gets angry at for loving and forgive, being so forgiving, he's the God we've seen in the flesh full of grace and truth. Jesus is greater than Jonah because while Jonah hated his enemies, Jesus loved them. He was this God in human flesh and ultimately would give his life for them. Jesus is greater than Jonah because Jonah preached judgment. We saw that in Jonah chapter 3. He goes to Nineveh. He finally does what God commands. But his heart isn't in it. And it seems as though whether the little eight words in our English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text and of what he said in Nineveh, 40 more days and you're going to be overthrown, whether that's a summary of his full message or whether that's all he said, it's, it seems as though all he declared was God's judgment on them. 
Jesus comes along, as we've just seen, full of grace and truth. And Jesus preached judgment. Jesus talked about the judgment of God on human sin and rebellion. He talked about the final judgment before God more than anyone else. And yet Jesus was the one who declared God's grace. Jesus was the one who offered forgiveness. Jesus was the one who set out to find the sinners and the broken and those who were far from God and felt incredibly unworthy and invited them in. Jesus was the one who said these incredible words just a chapter before this story in Matthew 12, that all who are weary and burdened can come and I will give you rest. An invitation to take his yoke and learn, for he is gentle and humble in heart. And with him we find rest for our souls. He is so much greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah because Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Jesus was swallowed by death itself. And whereas Jonah walked alive from a fish three days later, Jesus walked alive from the grave. And I think to say that Jonah died in the fish and came back to life is actually to to make too much of Jonah. The comparison's the length of time, that's all. What was miraculous about Jesus is he did so much more. He died for the sins of the world and he defeated death itself, which is our greatest enemy. See, Jesus is greater than Jonah in every way. And he proved it by rising from the dead. I love the way that Jesus does this here. He takes people who who refuse to believe, who just aren't impressed by anything they've seen or heard, and they demand a sign, and Jesus turns around and says, the sign I'll give you, one sign, is I'm going to rise from the dead. And that will convince some of you. That will bring some of you to faith in me. Others of you, not even the resurrection of the dead is going to impress you. Because you've already decided you don't want to believe. But that's the sign you're getting. Don't ask me for more signs. Don't ask me to write your name in the clouds. Don't ask me to help you win lotto. Don't ask for some miracle that if you only see that, then you'll believe. If you'll only make your car start that one time, if you'll only give me that car park on a shopping day, God says, no, no, no. This is the sign. After three days, I'm going to walk out from the grave. Either believe me, Jesus says, on the basis of the resurrection from the dead that I have conquered death, or don't believe. But that's the sign I'm giving you. That's the sign of Jonah. R.C. Sproul, a wonderful theologian who passed away just a few weeks ago, he writes this about this chapter of Matthew. No sign authenticates the person of Jesus more completely and powerfully than his resurrection from the dead. We simply will not get anything greater than this sign. He conquered death. He rose again. He walked out victorious. And he now holds out eternal life for every single one of us. That's why Easter, the cross and the grave, is at the heart of the Christian message. That's why the gospel from the very beginning would be summarized this way. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is the sign. Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And we either believe in him on the basis of that amazing sign or we continue in our unbelief. But Jesus says, something greater than Jonah is here. And this is the sign that will prove it. I'm going to rise from the dead. I was thinking about that this morning. And I remembered something that C.S. Lewis wrote. And I want to end with this quote. Many of you will have heard it before. But for me, I think it captures what the resurrection of Jesus is about. And it captures the what I think is the key evidence. Jesus is way bigger than Jonah. He is far different to any other prophet that's walked the face of the earth. Jesus is superior to Buddha and Muhammad and Moses. Jesus is above anyone because only Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's why C.S. Lewis would write these words. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man, he said, and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who said he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But, C.S. Lewis wrote, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Jesus is greater than Jonah and any other prophet or teacher that has walked the face of the earth. And he proved it to those who will believe by rising from the dead. Jesus, I want to say today, thank you to you, because you are alive. We can speak to you. We can worship you. We can pray to you. You are the one who came full of grace and truth and who is still full of grace and truth today. And you are the one who holds out the promise of life to us just as you did 2,000 years ago when you walked here physically. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for the truth of who you are. Thank you that you are not simply a great moral teacher, but you are the living God who has conquered death and are greater than any other person who has ever walked. For those who don't know you today, I pray they would leave aside the fence-sitting idea that you are a great moral teacher and they would choose to embrace you for who you are as the risen Lord in Christ. 
And for those who do believe, who have come to trust in you, we pray that today we would celebrate and rejoice. You are who you said you were. You have done what you said you would do. You've died for our sins. You've risen again. And you are going to one day come back and take us home and we will be with you forever. And this day, Easter morning, we celebrate the life you give us. In your beautiful name, amen. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Can we stand together?